Welcome back, everybody. It is an honor to have Gene Epstein on the podcast once again with a fresh Kobayashi painting behind him. I told him I'm not bringing you on until you got some nice artwork in that office, and it's an honor to have you here, Gene. Yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, Rob uh, and and Kobayashi is the last name of my wife, Sako Kobayashi, who's a world-class abstract painter. Um, and so thanks for the plug. Uh, paintings like that go for about 5000 in shitcoin. But for run-your-mouth uh, regulars, I probably could uh, negotiate a 20% discount. Can you afford not to buy a Kobayashi, given what's likely to happen to the stock market, the bond market? Kobayashis and Bitcoin are probably where you should put your shitcoin. Uh, that's my slogan. And thanks for allowing me to uh, put in that plug, Rob. I've got a couple of other plugs. But uh, mostly, of course, I want to say it's great to appear once again on Run Your Mouth with Professor Rob Bernstein, because I especially like your style. I like the way you listen and then you summarize and you say, did I get that right? You know, and in an age of short attention spans, you sometimes have to repeat things. And especially given what we're going to discuss today, which is money, banking, fascinating and important issues, but a little complicated. So we want to unpack them slowly. And I'm going to do that uh, this uh, this afternoon. Uh, but uh, let me begin with a plug of my own because, you know, these uh, podcasts go on for a couple of hours and who knows who's listening at the end. So let me just put my front load, my plug, uh, Rob, about what I'm up to. Um, <clears throat> on uh, Friday evening, May 28th, I'm going to be in the free state of New Hampshire. And that's that kicks off Memorial Day weekend in the free state of New Hampshire. There are going to be a lot of great events up there, uh, a lot of nice hotels to stay at. Uh, my wife, Asako, and I are going to be there through the weekend. Dennis Pratt, who organizes Pork Fest, for example, is have is going to have a reception at his lovely home and lawn on Sunday evening. There's going to be a couple of events at the Shell, which is where they meet. And Friday evening, I'm going to be at the Shell. That's May 28th. Uh, the audience is going to watch my recent April 18th debate on socialism versus capitalism uh, with Ben Burgess. Uh, that and Ben, uh, those who uh, listen to Dave Smith's show, for example, are pretty familiar with Ben Burgess. Of the three debates I've had on socialism, I've now has had a socialist trilogy. Ben put up the biggest fight of all, I will certainly say. I was fully expecting that. I did win pretty substantially, uh, according to Oxford-style voting, as I also suspected. And Ben, I think, very nicely exposed the kind of dystopia he wants for us all in uh, under socialism. But uh, the question is, how well did I ultimately do? Uh, you know, socialism not, is not dying. They're still out there preaching uh, this uh, dystopian gospel, and I'm going to be interested in feedback. We're going to watch the show, and then I'm going to be put in the hot seat by the audience. They're going to say, uh, what else could you have said? What else could you have done? Where does all this stuff come from? Uh, I think it'll be a fascinating evening on, um, again, on May 28th. Go into uh, my Twitter account, at Gene Soul Forum for full information, or go into uh, our website, thesoulforum.org, for information about that Memorial Day weekend in the free state of New Hampshire, uh, which which I'll be kicking off with a Gene Epstein in the hot seat evening at the at the Shell, their meeting place on May twenty eighth. It's a it's a fun venue. I went up there uh, last year, December. 
And oh, I can yes. tell you those guys are pretty knowledgeable. So I hope that they, uh, you know, I, I bet they'll have some good insights for you and it's going to be a fun event. I, uh, I, I, I have always have room for improvement. Even at 76, Rob, uh, <laughs> at age 76, I've learned a lot from you, from Dave, from Tom Woods, from, uh, you know, from uh, even even occasionally from Ben Burgess, although very rarely. And uh, so uh, I, I'm going to benefit and I think it'll be an electric evening. We will record it. We will record it on video and audio uh, and, and uh, release it to the world. Uh, as well, uh, so uh, so you won't uh, you know you will be able to uh, benefit from it as well, even if you can't make it. Excellent. So yeah. today I invited yeah. you back on because uh, since we last spoke, I've been reading uh, Rothbard's. I got it here this time. I won't mess up the title. We got a history of money in ba of banking in the United States. It's a There's dense nothing read. You won't read Rob. God, okay. <laughs> it's I, a. I don't know. It's a very dense work. Yes, going to yeah. It's, it's, a, it's actually a collect. It's a potpourri. It's a collection of different essays that Rothbard wrote. Yeah. Oh, okay. It's, <laughs> it's a dense read. It to me, this is the most interesting topic. Where right. uh, if you were just to kind of, if you've ever watched a movie like Ocean's Eleven, where there's this amazing grift and they're stealing from the casino, to me, the story of the Federal Reserve um, is not that yeah. dissimilar. Where you've got the yeah. most incredible con of all time where everybody just accepts that there's this institution basically run by private banks that are um, profiting by printing money and lending it out. And there's a, a expansionary inflationary scheme that we're going to start to break down for you. But that in the overall is why I find this so interesting yeah. is that right before us, we've got this incredible con. Um, so before we get yeah. into some of the book, uh, Gene, you said that you were going to give us kind of the Austrian take about firstly, the origins of money and then yeah. we'll start getting into the fundamental reason of why we don't need, why we'd just be better off with the private banking apparatus, why we don't need this federal banking or, you know, the money reserve system. Yeah. So I'll hand it back yeah. to you yeah. to start educating us here. Yeah. Yeah. Well, again, I have to caution uh, Rob Bernstein's listeners. Uh, I, I don't know who you are, but uh, if, uh, but Rob Bernstein is just an incredible scholar. He he just loves <laughs> historical minutia. This is a very dense book. Occasionally, it even confused me because it throws so many concepts around. But that's Rob for you. You know, he's the ultimate Talmudic scholar. Uh, God knows what, you know, probably 100 years ago, he would have been uh, a famous rabbi and an expert on almost all the Talmud because that's uh, Rob's mind. But uh, those of us who don't share uh, the the density of those uh, those gray furrows in, in Rob's brain have to approach this thing a little bit more simply. Is that a train in the background, Rob? What's going on? I do live next to a train station, which uh, is good for my property value. That's how I can afford such a nice room like this is that fine the, train sound you're in the bronx Rob? no i live in connecticut but still next to a train station i try oh, and right. uh yeah, i'm used connecticut. to new york city sound so i made sure before i moved here that there'd be a lot of noise yeah. well uh I, okay uh yeah no i i'm going to proceed with what what comes mostly from rothbard although surprisingly enough uh, i'm going to be weaving some insights from uh, free market antagonists of Rothbard, uh, George Selgin and Larry White. Uh, uh, George Selgin is at Cato Institute, and uh, Larry White 
is at uh, George Mason. Uh, they are fellow travelers and they do have insights uh, and that will come up as well. But basically uh, I have made a like a 50 year study of the subject. And uh, for the most part, what I know I got from Rothbard. I want to begin then with the simplest question of all, which is um, uh, the origin of money, how, uh, which, which is actually the same topic as why do we value money? Uh, how, when we receive dollars, um, uh, what is the mechanism whereby we place value on those dollars? Now, that may seem almost an irrelevant question, but really it is a question that economists must ask. And the Austrians, uh, starting with uh, Karl Menger, had a unique answer to that question. And unfortunately, you will not find the Austrian answer in any of the textbooks. You'll find a lot of mathematical gobbledygook about how we value money. I actually, it's called the regression theorem. I think that's what Mises called it. I myself would like to just call it more colloquially uh, the yesterday theory. Really, really, we are all very simple folk. And and if Rob receives a hundred dollars in shitcoin, a hundred dollars, uh, then uh, then he values it. I value it. Anybody values it, based upon our knowledge about what it could buy yesterday. That's basically it. Uh, yeah, that that sort of elementary uh, explanation uh, is what you have to begin with. You know, we knew it could buy a certain amount of goods and services yesterday. And, and we're pretty uh, accurate if, uh, to, to imagine that for the most part, it's going to buy a similar basket today. We even know, of course, that prices change a little bit from day to day. Uh, well, we might be subject to a shock here and there. But by and large, we value the money. We accept those dollars, those greenbacks, uh, or that check drawn on, uh, on a bank, which is part of the Federal Reserve System. We accept it because uh, we knew it could buy things yesterday. Uh, but now uh, the question regresses backward in time. Uh, wh why did we value that money yesterday? Well, because we knew it could buy things the day before. And that's where we keep going back and back in time. It could buy things the day before, the day before that, the day before that. And in fact, historically, we know that the dollar uh, traces itself to gold and silver. That we know back in the 19th century that the dollar was redeemable in gold and and to some degree redeemable in silver. And so uh, we know then that the dollar's value was, was piggybacked on gold, that it gradually the government phased out the redeemability, but then it depended on accepting the idea that it could buy things the day before. So now we begin to talk about gold and silver. And then we begin to then ask another question, a related question. If we're going to keep going back and back in time uh, to, uh, to uh, with these dollars or with this gold and silver, and, we, and we're going to say, well, it, it, we value it because of what it could buy the day before, the day before that, and the day before that, we know that at some point in time, we're at day zero. We're at day zero. Uh, before money came into being. Uh, we know that humankind was on this earth for many millennia prior to the use of money. 
<clears throat> so uh, what was what was the case on day zero? And this is, of course, the Mangarian and uh, and Misesian solution, which says that all money must begin. <clears throat> I'm going to take some cough medicine. All money must begin on the free market in some commodity or other. That that gold and silver being a very very good examples, but seashells were also money. Salt was money. In other words, what happened now? If we go back in time and start going forward, is that in order to facilitate uh, the trading of goods, people began to think, well, uh, I I've got eggs and uh, and Rob has ham, and uh, I I uh, I don't really want to. Rob doesn't want my eggs, and I don't want his ham. But uh, but uh, but if we uh, if I give him some commodity that uh, that he values that he might be able to trade for something else, then maybe we, we could arrange a transaction. And so that's where you might hit on gold and silver. Perhaps you know the famous story about the British POW camp during World War II. They got care packages and a lot of different you know care packages which are set. Uh, a series of goods and different people wanted different things in different care packages, but they couldn't trade the particular items in the care packages. So suddenly they were using cigarettes as their medium of exchange because everybody smoked or almost everybody, or if you, even if you didn't smoke, you knew that cigarettes were a value. So uh, money is a medium of exchange and it always begins in a commodity and it always begins then on the free market. Government does not uh, create money. It's only created on the free market. Uh, as we regress back in time, it always originates in a commodity. And then if you think about the, the, the use of cigarettes as money versus the use of gold, you have to recognize, well, in the, in the POW camp, all they had was cigarettes. So that, that was what was the easiest thing to use as money. But certainly if they had access to gold, they would have used gold trinkets because, you know, the cigarettes wear out. Uh, uh, you can, the, 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 the gold is much more easily assayable. The gold is, uh, the, the, the gold, it can be transported in valuable small units. The other part of it as well uh, is, which probably I assume was true of cigarettes, is that, uh, is that gold is, is, is expensive to mine. Uh, and that uh, and that it's very difficult. You can have a gold mine, but still, it costs money. It costs time. It comes effort, and therefore, the amount of gold uh, outstanding can only be increased by a certain amount, by a limited amount. Uh, it's it's factually true that even given some of the famous gold finds of the 19th century, did not really cause a whole lot of price inflation. Did not really increase the amount of gold outstanding by very much. And now, of course, almost all. All the gold outstanding today is equivalent to all the gold that's actually been mined since the beginning of time. So I'm, I'm emphasizing gold because gold became the money of choice. But so the point this is, is the lesson in this. Go ahead, go ahead Rob. I, yeah, no, I was going to say this is somewhat a fascinating way to think about money, and I never thought about it on these terms, but money is almost the first invention of the free market. Like when we think about the free market and it comes up with solutions because people are engaging and like they're solving problems. So money solved the problem of what if I want that from you and I don't have something that I can trade for it. We got expiring yeah. goods. So in other words, yeah. money came about because people organically solved the store of value problem and they saw the need to have a third, like almost like a third party item that you could trade for goods, such as cigarettes within a 
you know, prison type mm-hmm. environment. And so money is like, it's one of the initial things that the market was able to solve. It was a problem that was solved by the market that we could have this other thing that we could use as a vehicle for trade. And that's the origin yeah. of money. Yes. Yes. Hold on. I want to correct. You use the term store of value, which I want to discuss. Uh, you, you actually mean a facilitate exchange, <clears throat> the exchange of goods, you know, the, the, the mismatch of, of goods and services that we trade. Rothbard used to joke to buy a newspaper in the morning. I could offer an economics lecture to the guy who runs a newsstand, but unfortunately that's not going to go if I offer him some money. So, so, so it's the, it's exchange. The story of value aspect of it, which is very much in the language uh, is interesting to explore. Maybe we could explore that in a moment, but we're really talking about uh, exchange, the exchange of goods and services, which then facilitates uh, the uh, the division of labor. <clears throat> and that's the problem itself. And then also the other point to bear in mind then is that there's no way for government to suddenly declare that money exists. We, we, money, government can only intervene and piggyback uh, on the chain of gold, silver uh, that already exists. Government does not create money. Only, only uh, 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 can money be created from a commodity, and then as that commodity becomes in, into greater use, then then uh, the day before, then the day before that begins to become the dynamic. And again, in day zero, it was a commodity, and it had value, and so that's how uh, the monetary regime got off. The so ground. I do have a question on that, though. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, the origin of what you described was that money I'm piggybacking that in my head, it had value yesterday. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Um, with, with the government money though, part of what gives money value is that I expect, <coughs> I know for sure that I can spend it somewhere. I expect that it's going to continue to have value. Yeah. If government were to create a new currency tomorrow and say, Hey, this currency is good for paying your taxes. Then I mm-hmm. know that there's built in redeemability for it. Yeah. So mm-hmm. like even if, you know, the origin of our system you, that you had stated was that money came originally, it was backed by gold and silver. And you were yeah. saying essentially they were piggybacking this process of um, the organic money creation. Yeah. But I would think that if a new government were to, you know, be formed tomorrow and they said, hey, we will accept the following for your taxes then there would probably have some built-in value because I know at a minimum I can use it to pay off the government. So any store theoretically might accept it because they also know that at the end of the day, it's got redeemability at the government. It has a built-in usage, which to me is part of the value of even you know our greenback today. Well, yes, um, but okay, but uh, but by analogy, uh, you know, we we used to have subway tokens. You know, uh, when we rode the subway. Now, of course, we have subway cards. Uh, there were uh, American Express uh, cash. You know, uh, the uh, private sector. You could redeem it in cash, but you but you want you, these are American Express. Uh, uh, why am I forgetting the term? Uh, uh, you you could uh, you, you could create sort of a subset uh, of money. I, as I say, the subway tokens were probably a decent stamps, for example. Uh, I will tell you that in my childhood, they said you could sell, you could send stamps, you could send money, or you could send, you know, 50 cents worth of stamps, and that would be uh, usable as money. So you could create, and, and as you say, well, if the government is collecting, uh, you know, a trillion dollars a year, and it, and it issues these tokens, I guess. Well, let's see, how would it work? I have to think about it. Uh, you, we, we have to buy stamps with money. Uh, that's that's standard money. We had to buy subway tokens with money. So the government issues 
these uh, tokens. Elaborate on that. For, we we buy them with with money. Uh, we buy them with regular money. Then don't we, Ron? How do we how do we acquire these tokens that the government issues with which it could pay taxes? What does it do? It just uh, how do we how do, how do we get it in the first place? Stumped you, Rob? <laughs> no. So I, I guess um, yeah. the redeemability would be let. I, I, yes, I guess that the origin of the government's creation of a new currency that would be redeemable for taxes is something that they would have to set a price for. The currency and spend. It, puts it, it puts it in the. I mean, again, because again, I, I'm just doing the analogy with the with the use literally did happen. Right. It was not uncommon where where you where they could say send send a dollar's worth of stamps and that's acceptable as money. But you have to buy the money. You have to buy those stamps with money. So the government is issuing it. How? Let me see. I guess it could pay. I guess it could pay its employees when the government. Yeah. Well, I guess when the government contracts uh, with vendors or when it uh, buys the services of its civil service employees, it could uh, it could well, issue I guess the, the yeah, as a theoretical, right? the, the SDR yeah. is not that different from what we're describing, that because governments were willing to accept it, you kind of have a new currency that wasn't at its origin backed by gold or silver. Well, yes. Well, I mean, it, it certainly wasn't that as well. I, um, I guess, by the way, Rob, uh, that might segue into a discussion of Bitcoin because Bitcoin didn't have the same origin. I'm, I'm, I'm only, I'm only saying uh, that I, I, I guess I do want to address your point about the taxes because a lot of economists seem to sort of throw this around that that's why it's money because government accepts it for taxes. I, I get uh, the, the only point I, I guess is that uh, bear in mind that, that hopefully uh, uh, we will still have, uh, you know, a lot of capitalism, and hopefully the government will only take like, uh, you know, thirty cents of thirty thirty percent of the economy. So therefore, if we pay it taxes, then then seventy percent of our transactions will still be you know, capitalist transactions. It will still be purchasing goods and services, and so uh, government uh, government use of these tokens, just like tokens to get on the subway, or just like the use of stamps, is going to be an aspect of what we do, but and the SDRs don't dominate either. And so I don't see that government can take over completely uh, uh, because it can't, uh, it, it can only issue these things by, by, through the purchase of services from vendors, or it could issue these things through the purchase of services from its civil service. Although probably what would happen, Rob, is that if, if you, let's say, let's say you and I have wonderful sinecures working for the defense department and we, and we get paid in money uh, in these tokens that can pay our taxes. We'll probably convert most of it to actual regular money in order to transact in the free market. Probably it's not going to dominate. It seems unlikely. I, 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 as a matter of fact, this gives out. I, uh, I mean, you, I mean, you raise some issues that are rough around the edges. None of which subverts the idea that this is where money comes from. But I, I do, I do, I did want to mention something of great interest, which relates to the point you raised. Uh, there, there are a group of people who associate themselves with the MMTers, the modern monetary. Uh, well, I, I call them so Theory. often modern theorists. Yeah, I, I tend to call them modern. I tend to call it modern monetary tyranny. And so All right, <laughs> I, keep, I keep forgetting what the T stands for. It stands for there. Yeah, and so there are these crazy theorists who actually argue that 
government is the government issued money in the first place that 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 my history is wrong uh the regression theorem is wrong and what they like to cite is that uh is that government was indeed issuing gold and silver coins pretty early on and that and that we don't we don't by the way we don't have any snapshots we don't have any real stories about you know rob bernstein's ancestor uh, who bought something from Gene Epstein's ancestor, you know, many, probably the Jews were the ones who thought of it first, Rob, as they often do. And so we don't really have any historical anecdotes which say, ah, it was it was actually 11,000 BC when Rob Bernstein's ancestor first used a little bit of gold to buy something from Gene Epstein's ancestor. So, so we actually don't well, have- so yeah, yeah, to, to, to state what I was saying maybe a little bit differently is yeah, that yeah. we're still, Tomorrow, if government were to create a currency, it's still piggybacking a system in which they were able to move from gold and silver yeah, over yeah. to paper dollars. Yeah. And so now there might be more of a buy-in aspect of that because they've already created an entire banking apparatus that works off of government fiat currencies. So they might be able to do that. Your point, though, is just that the origin of currency yeah. um, and people transacting in some sort of a, you know, uh, like a a third, let's just call it a third party yeah. device, not just my eggs for your for your chicken, but my gold for your chicken yeah, originates yeah. from people outside of government wanting to transact. It, it grew organically from a human need for transactions yeah. and government over time was able to piggyback that process by building off of what was already existing with gold and silver. Yes. Yeah. And, and OK, I, I was going to tell the story, which 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 actually they're trying to put, they're trying to claim that government actually created gold and silver as money because they issued they issued gold and silver coins. And, and it was Larry White who pointed out that if gold did if government did this, then then they wouldn't have used gold and silver. They would have used cheaper items if, go, if government actually created money because gold and silver is, is, is preferred on the free market precisely because it's scarce and expensive. Gold would have government would have used a cheaper method, but that's a digression. Uh, but but of course that sets the stage um, for uh, the next part of it. Uh, I, and I guess let me, digre let me digress for a moment to use a nice analogy that George Selden uses when he, when he he points out that that the, the mainstream because they've learned it from Adam Smith, uh, the mainstream favors free international trade. And when the mainstream criticizes tariffs and other trade barriers, they have in their mind an understanding of how free international trade would actually work. They have such concepts of, of comparative advantage, uh, which I prefer to call relative advantage uh, because it's often confused. They, they understand what free trade is. But, uh, but uh, Selton points out the mainstream, however, doesn't have a clue uh, or even though it's been handed to them by the Austrians, does not have a clue about how f uh, a free market and banking would work. Uh, and so, uh, and of course, the, the, and and of course, the, the the Federal Reserve offers them great opportunities for power and wealth and influence. And so, they're seduced by the Federal Reserve. So, when you confront in a textbook is when you're discussing money and banking, suddenly the central bank is. Part of the firmament. It's uh, it's like uh, it's it's like a given. You know, we never question it. And but but obviously the this, the story that we've just told then asks why does government get involved at all in money? And um, of course we know to fight its wars and to finance itself. Government has normally two ways uh, to raise money through taxing and borrowing, but a third way 
would be to be able to print money. And in order to print money, you have to seize the people's money. Uh, and so that's what motivates government uh, to get involved. And uh, why I call MMT modern monetary tyranny is that at least, at least if we're going to have a government, uh, if the government wants our wants the fruit of our labor, if it wants to take our resources, let it come to us and say, we're going to tax you or we're going to borrow. And of course, if we borrow, we've got to borrow against future, future taxes. At least put that limitation on government's power. Uh, but uh, the, the MMT are say, oh God, you know, that's that's so, uh, so arcane, that's just so passe. Uh, all government has to do is print the money. And, and of course, that's what the Federal Reserve allows the government to do, and that's what other institutions prior to the Federal Reserve allowed the government to do. And why I call it tyranny is that that, that that's when it doesn't even have to ask us ab about taking the fruit of our labor. It can simply uh, pre preempt us by printing the money and, and bidding away the, 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 the labor and resources from us uh, through the power of that printed money. And my point is that our, my objection to the Federal Reserve uh, almost stops and starts with sheer rights under a free society, that that government has no right to exploit us through the printing of money, uh, because that that's that's the most insidious theft of all, and that's why I call MMT modern monetary tyranny, and why it simply codifies the the, the total corruption uh, that we've suffered from with the Federal Reserve uh, for uh, over a century. But and by, uh, so, just to expand yeah. on on that point, because I, I agree with you a hundred percent, and yeah. I think. One of the things that keeps things somewhat in check is that if you have to pay for something, you have to actually make a decision about whether or not you want it. Yeah. If the government can just print the money for us to go to war tomorrow, then we never really have to have a conversation. Hey, do I want to have this war? We never have to make the sacrifice for it. They just take it out the back end, which means that we're kind <coughs> of removing that market element of having to pay for something, which that's the only way. Like if you offer me tomorrow, hey, you want a brand new $5,000 bike? Yeah, of course I do. If I have to actually go pay for it, I got to make a decision about the other things I have to sacrifice in my life in order to go have it. So yeah. if government never has to ask us to pay for something, we're never using that market function of, do I actually want to pay for this? Which is a pretty good way of making sure that you actually want it and that you're not just engaging in wasteful activities or in this case, you know, activities that just help one individual group. Um, so yeah. that to me is one side of the Federal Reserve argument yeah. is, that, yeah. is that government is robbing us of our wealth. Um, yeah, and, 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 and that's a non-economic argument. That's precisely good. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But yeah. the other side yeah, of it, yeah. which I think is of yeah. interest and is also yeah. important, yeah. is that it's actually not just government. At least government, when they're robbing us of our wealth, they can make the claim that these are investments that might benefit us. They can at least make that claim. You and I, you wouldn't agree with us, but you can make that claim. But when the private bankers are in on this scheme, and we're going to have to get into a little bit about how fractional reserve banking works oh, and the relationship yeah. between the banks, the Fed and government in terms of fractional reserve expansionary banking. But there's really no argument that you could put forward for why JP Morgan and the Rockefellers should be able to take part in this scheme where they get to profit. They get the, they're the only people who get to, or I mean, there are other banks in the system, but there's no reason why certain private individuals should be allowed to be engaged in this scheme where they get to inflate the money supply and profit off that process. Like it would be one thing if it was an entirely national system, I still wouldn't agree with it. And I don't know that that would, that that would be better for it, but at least you can make the argument that 
that's the way government works and it's representing the people. And then we could explore all the flaws of that. But to add on that you're going to have private bankers that are able to just profit off the scheme with the help of government, that's when you end up in the world of just insanity. Well, just a moment. Okay. <laughs> here, Rob, here, here, I guess I'm going to steer the conversation and try to steer it in a slightly different direction, which is to say that, yes, you're right. The, 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 the banksters have benefited. Uh, they are in league with the Federal Reserve. <clears throat> I, I have to say, Rob, that I regard that as less important than what I was going to get into as the second part of the story, which actually doesn't necessarily turn on on the fractional reserve versus full reserve debate, which we, which we of course have to mention. It, it's only this, uh, which is that whether or not, or I mean, I guess I'd put it another way for you, Rob. I'd, I'd, I'd say to you, Rob, well, now let's say government could arrange it so that uh, so that the Rockefellers and the Morgans and all those banksters don't benefit. Would that be okay with you? Well, no, you said, well, it wouldn't be okay with me because, again, uh, when government can just peremptorily print money, when Dick Cheney can say uh, Reagan proved that deficits don't matter, what Dick Cheney, then Vice President of the United States, really meant was that deficits don't matter because we can always print the money. We don't, we don't have to worry. And indeed, that's the insanity that's going on right now. Uh, three trillions of dollars spent by government, and essentially it's going to be printed. They're going to they're going to pose some higher taxes on the rich. Yes, that's what they talk well, about. But by and large, it's going to come from printing. So that, I think, is inherently corrupt. And as a matter of fact, even John Maynard Keynes uh, invaded against it. But we, we meant that we, we've dealt with that, Rob. I wanted to deal with the next part of it, okay. which is to say that it isn't so much that I need to make villains out of the banksters, even though they are villainously involved. Uh, it's really something that hopefully we can explain fairly simply, which is that we've mentioned why gold and silver uh, become money. We've, uh, we've mentioned that one attribute of gold and silver is that it's very difficult to expand uh, the supply of gold and silver so that it goes out of control. Uh, out of control. I mean, I shouldn't have said out of expand it so that it increases, say, by twenty percent a year, thirty percent a year. Uh, certainly today, and and in the nineteenth century, or even going back, uh, the, the 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 amount of gold finds, even when they were booming, uh, could not expand the, the supply of money by very much. And that's why then uh, those precious metals provided a good base for the money supply. Uh, the, the, the key point, which most people can understand, is that price inflation then is kept under control. Because again, if you have, if goods are expanding by, let's say 6%, but but the, uh, the money supply increases by 50%, then you're gonna get very rapid price inflation and that's gonna be unstable. Uh, and other things will happen as well, uh, which brings up the Austrian business cycle theory, which we'll get into. But the point is only that uh, that a relatively stable money supply is of great importance, and that's why gold and silver became uh, the money of choice. And uh, and it will get us into Bitcoin as well, as you know. Bitcoin was set up so that there can never be more than twenty-one million units of Bitcoin. So stable supply, and in the in the Bitcoin case, taking it to an extreme where it's going to be flat supply, uh, never increase at all from 21 
million units. That's vital to the stability of money. And uh, indeed, it's almost, uh, you know, when you talk about how did this all get invented? How did this come to be? You know, if you want to get religious on us, somehow or other, God sent us gold and sent us silver, which works very well as money. Uh, but then uh, he sent us Satoshi Nakamoto, who thought up a way to replicate the virtues of gold and silver in the crypto age. Uh, so that's very important. Uh, you want to say, because that sets the stage for the role of the Federal Reserve. But go ahead. Yeah. What well, I, I think just uh, one thing that uh, I think is going to be important to, to set ahead. up here is that yeah. even within the gold and silver structure, um, banks started creating notes against the gold and silver, yeah. right? Uh, yeah. And then they started overexpanding <laughs> the notes. So I think one yeah. of the things that just might be yeah. uh, important to educate our listeners about is that with the fractional reserve banking system, yeah. you do have an expanding money supply yeah. where banks are incentivized if they can to the extent that they can um to expand the money supply if they get you know a hundred dollars in they, they want to lend that money out um and i think what's just worth explaining yeah. is that there's some significant costs that are, are predictable and come to us based off of the fractional reserve banking system and the expanding money supply yeah. um the biggest ones are obviously being inflation and that they do create a boom and bust cycle um yeah. So I'll, I'll hand that back to you because I think that fits well, in a little bit with the Austrian business cycle theory, which I'm not really all that educated on. Okay. Uh, but I do think it's an important piece of the puzzle if we're looking at the issue of it, you know, basically the Federal Reserve and um, a banking system that allows the banks to work together to inflate the banking, you know, the money supply. Okay, I, I see now. I'm I'm going to surprise you a little bit by saying that I'm 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 going to be a little bit neutral on on what you might be uh, aware of as a classic debate between uh, people like uh, George Selzin and Larry White and uh, and the Rothbardians at Mises Institute. Uh, there there are a lot of uh, 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 I guess I guess my way of putting it would be to say that uh, I would want to allow, I want to abolish the Federal Reserve. I I want to make a transition to a free market in banking. And and then I want to be open-minded about uh, whether uh, banks would, to some degree, uh, practice fractional reserve banking. Uh, what, uh, what, what Selgin and White argue is that where that happened, in other words, uh, let me go over what you've just said, Rob. Do a Rob, do a Professor Bernstein on because it's important <laughs> for people to understand that uh, that the complaint is that well, you have uh, you know you have let's say uh, a, a billion units of gold and that's money, but uh, if uh, if the money is uh, is stored in banks, and by the way, you know the word bank, which is like put something by a river bank. You're just banking it. You're you're putting it. You're putting it by the riverbank. You're putting it aside. You're uh, for use, but for possible use. And of course, banks that get it, their warehouses, they get it, and and then they might transact with you to make investments with it. But if there's an investment that they make with it, then in the in the uh, according to the strict. Uh, rules of the Misesians, the bank would say to you, Rob, well, you've got a lot of money with us. Can't we invest some of it? And we'll give you a bank CD. That means you can't redeem it right away, but we're going to invest it for you. We'll make some money on it and we'll pay you a return. So that's how banking sort of arises, that, that people have gold and they put it in these 
warehouses, these banks, and the banks then become financial institutions and they engage in various activities. But according to you, Rob, if you've got a checking account uh, that says that uh, that's, that it's a thousand ounces of gold for your use, then you want those thousand ounces to be there. That's that's the hundred percent backing uh, of, of that gold. But of course, you might have another thousand or so ounces that you've lent to the bank. The bank uh, bank w- will pay you some return and the bank might have lent that money out. So that's all strict and above board, honest transactions. Uh, and uh, so, uh, but, uh, uh, but then as you indicate, Rob, if, uh, if as commonly happens today, and did happen in the 19th century, if if the bank decides to lend out some of that money it has in demand deposits, then then it actually does not have that thousand ounces in the bank for you. It might have only a hundred of it, and it might have lent out the other nine hundred. <clears throat> and, and that and so if it does that, then it's actually increasing the money supply. Uh, and you are saying, well, that causes instability. Uh, you know, actually, you know, I could get into it, but bear in mind one thing. Let's say that. Uh, let's say uh, that we have a situation in which uh, we've we, we we have fractional reserve banking and it's written it's and it's ten to one instead of actually having uh, a, a a billion ounces out there we've got ten billion ounces in use the point that's been made is that you can't expand very much from there Rod another point that's been made by Selgin and White is that where you actually did have irresponsible fractional reserve banking, that's where you had government underwriting it. That historically, that you had government underwriting it. And the one point, I guess, maybe the only point to stress, I hope I haven't confused my audience too much, the only point to stress is that Selgin, White, and the Misesians, and hopefully Professor Bernstein and Gene Epstein, we all agree that the, that the way to keep the money supply under control is through competitive banking. Because if, if, if there is a bank that irresponsibly starts to inflate, starts to pyramid, as you indicate, and, and, and leads the pack, gets very greedy and says, no, we're going to only have 1% backing. We're, we're going to issue more and more uh, uh, loans out there. And, and, and for the demand deposits, there'll only be a 1% backing. Then those th- those commitments are going to be registered with other banks, and the other banks are going to cause a run on the first bank that acts irresponsibly. So the point I, to, go ahead, yes. I do, I, and I, I'm sure I'm just missing something here, no, but yeah, it sounds yeah. to me that yeah. um, at least Selgin's example, in my opinion or my understanding, doesn't sound like it's the classical definition of fractional reserve banking. And what I mean oh. by that is if I go to a bank. And I give them a thousand dollars, and I make yeah. an agreement with the bank that they can lend out nine hundred of that because yeah. you know they're better at using money than I am. They might know that there's a mortgage that they can bundle that up with, and that they can get their four percent return, and they're going to cut me in at one percent. That's a pretty good and fair transaction. Okay. Yeah. That to me is not classical fractional yeah. reserve banking. Classical oh, yeah, yeah. fractional yeah. reserve banking is yeah. I deposit the thousand, and then they might deposit nine hundred dollars, you know, somewhere else, and then all of a sudden we've expanded the money supply. In a very big way. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. No, 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 Rob. Uh, thank you. Uh, that's what you said. Is exactly what I meant to say. I meant to say that 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 I only meant to elaborate on the point that that if that if you have the Misesian, I, I should say I shouldn't say Misesian because if people claim we don't know what Mises really thought. <laughs> the Rothbardian, uh, uh, the Rothbardian view that all demand deposits should be hundred percent backed. 
But I only meant to point out precisely what you're indicating, which is that that doesn't mean that banks can't act as financial intermediaries. Because as you say, if you, if you deposit a certain amount, a thousand ounces with the bank, the bank will say, well, probably for your use, you only need about $100 or $500 in a demand deposit. Uh, why don't we increase uh, your return with us by lending out the other $500? In other words, that's what I meant to emphasize, which is that there's nothing in the 100% reserve uh, requirement imposed oh, okay. by the Roth that indicates that a bank can't also be an investment institution. Because of what I said, because obviously uh, you you might uh, use that bank uh, to uh, to uh, uh, to invest money for you, and you'll get a bank CD in return, just as you indicated. So that's not what's. So no, we all agree that that is the Misesian, that's the Rothbardian way, and we all agree that uh, the violation of fractional reserve banking occurs on the demand deposit level. That if you have 500 ounces of gold with the bank and a checking account against that 500, then uh, if the bank then lends out 400 of it uh, and practices and only has 100 backing on that 500 that you think you have with the bank, that's fractional reserve banking. Then it is indeed increasing the money supply uh, in a way that offends the Rothbardians, but in a way that, at least according to Selgin and White, uh, is not necessarily a, a violation of uh, of uh, of its fiduciary agreement. Let's say, well, that's what we do. Uh, uh, and I'm only trying to say to you so, that that absolutely. it's an argument, it's a debate, which is interesting to to have, but. But, but in a way less interesting than, let me finish this point, I guess, less interesting than something else, which is that all agree, White, Selgin, Rothbard, we all agree that, that in a free market, uh, the way in which the, 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 uh, the dangerous expansion of the money supply can be controlled is through competition. That any banks that have the motivation to uh, to to really lead the pack and and inflate considerably are going to suffer runs on their holdings uh, and and the runs this is something of course that Rothbard especially pointed out other banks will cause the run in other words what if if, if that bank lends out money and uh, uh, and 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 those loans that the checks it writes get deposited in banks B C D and E and it's bank A that's committing uh, the uh, the uh, the expansion of the money supply then B C D and E will have a run on bank A and and so the point is then that competitive banking uh, is important, just like competition is important in every sphere in the economy. In in banking, in order to keep banks honest, uh, so that they don't overinflate, we need competition. We 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 then say uh, uh, the solution is a monopoly imposed by government. Uh, that that we're going to trust the government to oversee this and not to inflate when every motivation of the government is to inflate when what the government is actually doing is protecting banks that act irresponsibly against runs through the central bank 
That's what the central bank does. It it protects banks against runs when they overinflate. Uh, and 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 the central bank has every reason to overinflate because it often wants to finance government's wars. When you said, by the way, the central bank is basically run by the private banksters, it is basically beholden to the government. The chairman of the Federal Reserve is appointed by the president, <laughs> and the Federal Reserve has now got to pony up, has now got to print money in order to finance all the spending by the Biden administration. So, therefore, uh, the point then is that uh, that when we we think abstractly, uh, we need competitive banking in order to control the money supply. Now, the next part of it, interestingly enough, is that Selgin and White will argue that if we did have a, a free market in banking, you would have some fractional reserve banking. And that in itself is an interesting debate. But where we all agree is that we need competition. And we need to understand that, <laughs> that the central bank was brought about in order to protect the banksters against, against the consequences of inflating and in order to facilitate inflating on the part of the government. But go ahead, Jan. Okay, so I, I agree uh, 100% with what you said. I'm just going to sum it up and bring a question to you. Still so, Professor Bernstein, yes. <laughs> what we're saying is uh, fractional reserve banking, let's not have that debate about whether or not that's an issue because at least in a open and free market, the expansion of money is somewhat kept in check that if a bank gets too aggressive, people yeah. will call on the bank and it will fold. The bigger other issue. It's not just the it's other banks will have right. deposits. Other banks will most likely be be the real vigilantes. But go ahead. Yeah. Right. No, no, I think I, I, I that is the most important part is that yeah, yeah. when the banks start working together, right, where they're not demanding deposits on each other, we're looking at the ability of banks to inflate and expand in a much larger way than could possibly exist in a free market it, a, where they have to compete with each other. It's a cartel organized by the central bank, by government. So yeah. just before we move um, on to the next yeah. point, I'd love a little bit more on, so once we're in this environment where banks yeah. have the ability to work together to expand credit, right? So aside from the fact that we can fund the wars, according to like the Austrian yeah. business cycle theory, why is that a cost to everybody? What are the negative consequences that come from this inflationary monetary scheme of every bank basically being able to work together to inflate the money supply? Yeah. Well, um, the the uh, in 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 broad outlines, then we're talking about ABCT, the Austrian Business Cycle Theory, and uh, I guess uh, uh, one uh, one of the things I guess I would want to say to frame it. Uh, at the outset would be that people often ask, uh, is this, is the inflation of the money supply and uh, the effect on interest rates the only way we have economic collapse, uh, booms and busts? Is it, aren't there other ways? What, how come the, how are the Austrians insisting that this tends to be the only way uh, booms and busts are caused? And the first answer to that is actually uh, the Austrians never insisted on this. Uh, I wrote an article uh, uh, last April called "The Great Suppression," and uh, and uh, and I, that's the label I gave the recent economic downturn. And I began by quoting Murray Rothbard himself in his book uh, uh, on the Great Depression. Rothbard said that uh, that a, a a bust can sometimes be brought about when the king goes crazy. 
you know, and and of course, what happened last April? The king went crazy. Uh, we had a great suppression. We simply decreed that that all, firstly, all businesses got to ground to a halt. You, only only essential services can be provided. We've got to shut down seventy percent of the economy. And so th that wasn't an Austrian business cycle theory. That was simply uh, the king going crazy, declaring that we can't operate anymore. Uh, it's a crime uh, to operate uh, a theater, a casino, a restaurant, and so you've got to shut down. So the government destroyed the economy, and we had a severe business downturn, uh, which I called the Great Suppression. And, uh, uh, and, and as I said, according to Rothbard himself, who's an expert in Austrian business cycle theory, this was not a conventional Austrian business cycle theory. Uh, this, this, was, this was simply the king going crazy. Uh, and, uh, and then uh, the, the next thing, I guess, to put in, in, into the framework is to say that uh, what, we, what, what, what we're observing when we look at an economic downturn is uh, is the convergence of bankruptcies. A lot of businesses are simply shutting down, going under. That's, of course, what happened when the government decreed uh, the uh, the lockdowns. Uh, all these businesses shut down. And uh, are there other ways for businesses to shut down? Well, you could invent a few ways. You could say, well, what, uh, what, what, what would happen if uh, everybody in the consumer economy decided to go kosher tomorrow? Uh, that uh, that we're not going to eat trafe anymore, starting tomorrow morning. Uh, that would cause a wave of business bankruptcies right away. But when we think about that, uh, and then we think about uh, the transitions made in a market economy, we realize that most of them uh, are not very severe. Most of the transitions are not very severe. Many of them are anticipated, uh, and that shocks like the lockdown that I mentioned, the Great Suppression, shocks like uh, all of us going uh, kosher tomorrow, uh, are uh, are unlikely in a market economy, and that and that since entrepreneurs are always forward looking, many of them are going out of business, many of them are not. Usually, we do not get uh, a convergence of bankruptcies, and uh, and so now that sets the stage for. Uh, the next thing to grasp, which is how does uh, the uh, the expansion of the money supply cause this kind of shock? Uh, I, I guess I guess I should stipulate that you might say that there's such a thing as an oil shock. You know that let's say if the price of oil jumps, you know as it once did from uh, it quadruples inside of a uh, inside of a, a couple of months, that could cause uh, 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 some bankruptcies. That could cause difficulties. Usually they're dealt with. So um, what I'm trying to say is that in order to make it plausible for people, that basically a, a business downturn <clears throat> is. Uh, is an unanticipated shock that happens in the economy. It, it's it's not something that happens very often. It did happen last year uh, due to the lockdown. But where it happens for the most part is with the expansion of the money supply and with the effect on interest rates. And there too, it doesn't always happen. But what what are we talking about in terms of the mechanism? What what we are talking about, I guess, is really best. Uh, uh, exemplified by uh, the downturn of 08 and 09, uh, 2008 and 09. That so was, I, so, I cut him for one second on that point because I, I just never thought it. about this on this terms. And I'm, I'm wondering yeah. if uh, yeah. essentially 
the market is pretty good at kind of making predictions about where to allocate capital. And when it's left to just the resources of the world, right, you don't have such sharp changes that all of a sudden things in the market get totally messed up. Yeah. But when you have things like expanding the money supply or interest rates where you can have sudden changes because it's actually a man-made phenomenon, it's coming from government, it's coming from banks, you can end up with events that the market would not have predicted that will actually end result in things like widespread bankruptcy or otherwise. In other words, you can have people thinking that, hey, look at this boom that's going on. Look at all this money that's going to be available. And so they'll make certain business decisions or lifestyle decisions. But what they're not realizing is that the reason why there's all that money out there is that banks are just kind of fabricating it. They're creating it. And at some point, they can't do that indefinitely. And so when you have contractions, it's going to be a man-made shock to the system that otherwise wouldn't exist. Like you were saying, the only real place that you see it with commodities is occasionally with oil and I think the examples, by the way, if you were to look at them, are probably Jimmy Carter when he made some errors in yeah. terms of his like. In other words, those are also probably more uh, errors of government than they are kind of just you know what's going on in the commodity markets. Yes. <clears throat> okay. Well, as a matter of fact, you you have indeed in broad brushstrokes summarized the uh, the the Western business cycle theory. Uh, it, it affects the interest rate. It makes certain allocations possible. But 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 now but uh, uh, since you since you summarized it fairly well, you give me the opportunity to make another major point and concession, which which is something I hear all the time when people are trying to grasp Western business cycle theory, which is if it keeps happening, why doesn't business become aware of it. Uh, the only part that you left out a little bit when you talked about, you know, the market economy is only that, again, entrepreneurs, people who are running, are running businesses are always looking to the future. That, that I mean, you, you, you hear some of the wildest things when people say, oh, there's going to be a, a major recession coming because, because the population is getting older and, and they're not going to be buying the same things. They're not going to be playing tennis the way they used to. You know, or, or the, a lot of stuff is going to change. And, and usually the response is, but don't you think that those people who run country clubs and tennis courts, most of them know that? There are a lot of dummies. There are bankruptcies. But that's the whole point about the market economy, which is that most of these things are, for the most part, anticipated. So they're unlikely to cause a, a major convergence of bankruptcies. Uh, but, uh, but, but that again, gets into the next part of it. Since you've given a, a reasonable uh, description of Austrian business cycle theory about interest rates getting low, m- malinvestment occurring, uh, then you want to ask, but, uh, and, and, the, and skeptics constantly ask, uh, but why doesn't business anticipate that also? Why do you make that a big exception? And, and actually, uh, to some degree, uh, there aren't perfect answers to that question. One of the simplest answers to that question is, is this, which is that if everybody listened to this podcast, Rob, all businessmen and all bankers listened to this podcast, or if everybody read Rothbard, uh, then uh, and, and if they recognized the dangers of what goes on when when uh, the money supply is expanded in this way, I do believe that the recessions would be milder. Uh, that there there's been a lot of discussion about this. It is true, though, that if you are in an industry, and even if you know 
that 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 a that a, a boom is occurring that's unsustainable and that a bust will occur. It may be difficult for you not to participate in it to some degree, even if you're fully cognizant of what's your business cycle there. I think but I will tell you, just let me finish one point. Yeah. I will tell you that during the housing boom. John Allison, who you may have heard of, who had read Austrian business cycle theory, and Charles Calamaris, uh, who was uh, a professor who was also running a bank. John Allison ran a major bank, uh, BB, BB&T. They both, they both had a pretty fair idea that there was a housing bubble that was going to burst, and they both tried to de- and their best to defend their banks against it and not participate in it. And so I'm I'm getting uh, again. Just another element I think people need to be aware of is that Mm -hmm. um, certainly since the last housing crisis, there's a perverse incentive to go bust. And if anything, we've somewhat extended that because, you know, if you had a business (laughs) in this downturn, you might have cashed out pretty good on PPE loans. You got an incentive to use the cheap money that's available to you, grow your business as much as you can. And if anything, if you hit a size where you're important enough to the economy, there's a good chance you're getting a bailout. Um, it, yeah. so yeah. It, we're, we're just not living in a totally free market where people are incentivized <laughs> to, to look at the fed and go, Hey, I'm, I'm, I think there's a, but like certainly some people can see the profits and going, Hey, I think there's going to be a bus coming. And the problem with being in that camp is that you're betting against the fed because you don't really know what tools they might utilize in order to ensure that we're not in a bear market. But on the same note, if you're on like, you know, the, the boom side, if you're an airline, or your certain critical industries, you're incentivized to keep growing because you kind of know that you got this backstop where the government's going to cut you a check to make sure your industry doesn't go under. Well, right, yeah, and and, and okay, yeah, no, you 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 made you pretty much answered it, Rob. But I'm only again backing up. I'm trying to emphasize one point: when you deal with the skeptics, the skeptics keep saying that. Well, you said that for the most part the free market anticipates these changes and you don't get a lot, a, a lot of converged bankruptcies. You get little problems, but not something major that you could really call a recession. Uh, then again, the question arises, uh, well, why, why is this one such a mystery? Why doesn't business anticipate this one? Because well, the derivative well, me, markets are really well, difficult for anyone to understand, including the financial okay. sector. Derivative markets. Well, no, no. Okay. So I'm just saying when you, when you, yeah. when you're talking about an economic downturn now, yeah. I, yeah. I mean, even myself as a person who finds this interesting, it is really hard to quite understand the way that all of the world's capital has been allocated and the derivative, like the derivative products against that. Even the last downturn, your best brains on Wall Street didn't quite understand the way that they uh, collateralized mortgage togethers and the tranches and what was going to happen. Okay, so the idea, so I'm just saying the idea that your typical capitalist or construction worker and that the way that the hive mind is supposed to work, where I can predict, oh, look at the way people are spending money, is not wildly distorted by what the Fed is doing and the way that banks further expand. Like, we're already beyond fractional reserve <laughs> banking. We're in a world of um, collateral. You, you see what I'm saying? So the idea that the the idea that your average capitalist can make predictions in a system that is this screwy with this many really intricate financial uh, products that can make major distortions for the entire system. That would be my argument back is like, no, well, we're, in, okay. we're in loony world here. Th- well, this is not the way that, you know, the free hand is supposed to work or your average capitalist is able to make, you know, informed decisions. Okay, Joshua, I, I think you made a better point earlier, Rob. But All right, fair enough. <laughs> but let, let me just make one point, Rob. The facts of the matter are that the BB&T Bank, as run by John Allison, uh, fared 
pretty well when the housing bubble burst. Allison had to fend off people on the boards of directors who wanted him to lend money to things that he thought were unsustainable. Uh, but, but he was successful in doing that. So my point then is that however complicated all these things that you mentioned, I, I think that the first answer to all of those who ask the question, why is this such an exception? Why doesn't, why doesn't the free market, why don't businessmen anticipate this as well, just like they're anticipating other changes in the marketplace? The first answer is that most of them thought that Greenspan and Bernanke walked on water. Most, most businessmen are simply ignorant of Austrian business cycle theory. And, and, uh, and so they don't, they don't have a full knowledge of these things as the, the knowledge that John Allison had. Uh, and so for starters, uh, the, 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 the first answer to the point is that while a businessman can understand that, that the population is getting older, therefore their, 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 their habits of consumption are going to change and, 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 and the markets, businesses are going to readjust accordingly. That's fairly straightforward. The, I, I guess alluding to your point about the tranches and all the rest, of, it's a complicated mess. But I thought you made the, a better point earlier, which is that, which is that if you see your competition taking advantage of the boom, and then if you bear in mind that 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 if you take advantage of the boom and take a little bit of undue risk, you might get bailed out. You bear in mind that if they get the jump on you and they take advantage of the boom, it might might last a long time. Very difficult to predict when a boom is gonna is gonna bust. So so even if you are knowledgeable about Austrian business cycle theory, you might still have to predict have to participate. Uh, Gene Callahan made this point very well in a book called Economics for Real People. Very good discussion of Austrian business cycle theory and Austrian news in general. Uh, I, I, I only, uh, I, I'm only trying to be careful by trying to be sensitive to all of the doubts raised about Austrian business cycle theory. You made some good points, as I said, about this. Uh, again, to revert to what the theory is, and to apply it to the housing bubble, that was an odd case of of of, of uh, 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 hidden in plain sight, which is a, a, a book uh, written about uh, what happened. Which is that the government, uh, in the person of uh, uh, Bill Clinton and uh, George W. Bush, especially, wanted to goose up home ownership, and they used the power of the Federal Reserve and the power, of, by the way, of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac, which operated like the Federal Reserve, to drive interest rates down and to and to make uh, and, and to make the home ownership rate uh, rise. And and they create they created an answer. They 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 drove that's the interest rate going down, and that's a case in which malinvestment is being made in housing. Mal malinvestment on the supply side is being made in housing and on the purchase side because housing is an investment that individuals make. Um, and so that brought about an unsustainable housing bubble, uh, which, which, uh, which was not difficult for me to perceive. Uh, but I, uh, when I saw it, uh, I, 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 I had to admit, I don't know when it's going to burst. So that's a problem. Uh, and then even when it did burst, it didn't initially bring the economy down. So that's another question about it. Uh, uh, will it bring the economy down or won't it? Uh, I uh, I found, uh, I, I believe that part of the reason why it had such an awful effect on the economy was the way the Federal Reserve mishandled the situation when the housing bubble did burst. Uh, I mentioned the housing bubble only because you'd think that that'd be fairly straightforward. You had a situation in which 
government, with the aid of the Federal Reserve, was driving, driving interest rates down. The, the mortgage interest rate, of course, is the sensitive interest rate with which people buy houses. Then on top of that, there was pressure to malinvest even further by, by allowing people with no job and no credit to buy houses because of the zeal with which uh, 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 the government wanted people to, uh, to, to buy homes. And then uh, the housing bubble burst, the, the home ownership rate collapsed, and it brought, uh, and, and it, it, it brought down, uh, it, it was enough of a convergence of bankruptcies to bring the economy down. Now, I mentioned that because I think it's the most obvious case of government intervention a la Austrian business cycle theory causing a recession. Uh, and then what is the solution? The solution on the part of the Austrians, uh, the Austrians say, is, of course, to let the malinvestment work itself out. Don't create zombie companies. Don't sustain, as tragic as it is to see people lose their homes, what else are you going to do if they can't pay for those homes? Uh, as tragic as it is to see businesses uh, on the supply side invest in building homes, what else are you going to do? Maintain them as zombie companies? We we have to reallocate the economy in the, in the direction of goods and services that are sustainable. And so that's the solution to the bust. So that's, that, that's the way in which uh, uh, the, uh, the, the government expansion of the money supply works on the economy. And let me backtrack and mention, mention one point, that it works on the interest rate, that the Federal Reserve lowers the interest rate and lowers uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the cost of borrowing and causes different kinds of malinvestment because the price of credit is the most important price of all in the economy. But by the way, there too, it doesn't always work uh, quite as badly as one might think because uh, because there are sometimes countervailing forces. If if the, if the Federal Reserve is expanding the money supply, then there might be a reaction on the part of the bond market to, to anticipate inflation and actually raise longer term interest rates. So a lot of that can happen too. So I, I'm, I'm only getting into some of the complications of it and saying that uh, that it doesn't always cause a bust. It, it isn't always strong enough to cause a bust. But if we if we think about if we round up the usual suspects again to to think about what causes instability, boom and bust in our economy, every once in a while the king goes crazy, as happened last year. Uh, every once in a while there can be an oil shock. I don't I don't even think the 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 oil shocks of the 70s did a whole lot of harm, uh, but that's conceivable too. It's a shock. But what else What else is the biggest shock? The biggest shock is when interest rates become low, malinvestment occurs, as in the case of housing, uh, and then a bubble forms, the bubble bursts, and then, uh, and, and, and then uh, that malinvestment has to work itself off. So that's the business cycle. It causes a lot of human misery, causes a lot of unemployment, and that's the other reason why we regard the central bank, the Federal Reserve, as part of the problem and not part of the solution. Okay, so let's get into now let's that. Get into yeah. Bitcoin. Now let's get into Bitcoin. Oh, okay, perfect. I love it. I'm a, I'm a, I'm BTC for life. You what? I'm, do I'm, you own Bitcoin? I what? do not not enough, but I own I own some, which makes me feel better about myself. I buy I actually buy gold and Bitcoin. I I uh, every month. I I uh, I we done pretty well in Bitcoin, Rob, if we started buying last year, easily enough. Uh, the, 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 the interesting part of Bitcoin, which of course initially befuddled me a bit, is that 
uh, is that when you were talking about not having origins as a commodity, uh, you could say that it, it didn't have an or its origins as a commodity. That in a way, uh, it piggybacked on our knowledge about money uh, uh, and uh, by by solving a basic problem. Uh, the basic problem is how do you assure the market that this supply of money is going to be stable? And uh, this gets back to our, our recent history when Friedrich Hayek, uh, who uh, won a Nobel Prize for contributing to Austrian business cycle theory, wrote a book in the 80s called The Denationalization of Money. Um, he thought that uh, uh, he was in despair about uh, about government. Uh, we had uh, double digit inflation at the time. We we had uh, we had had two major recessions in mid seventies and early eighties. <coughs> and Hayek wrote a manifesto in which he said that we need uh, we need the private sector to issue money, and uh, and and he and he thought that uh, that we could encourage. Uh, private sector firms to compete by creating a stable money that 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 uh, that that Rob Bernstein would set up a firm in which he would issue money called Bernstein's and uh, and he would get it off the ground and uh, I forget precisely how you'd get it off the ground there must be ways and then he would assure the market that he's not going to expand the number of Bernsteins beyond a reasonable amount that he's going to be an honorable guy and that there'll be and then if Bernstein doesn't do it well enough then Epstein will do it and this was this was, this gets into sort of like some of the speculative and conjectural aspects uh, conjectural aspects of whether we trust uh private sector money whether we trust to what extent do we trust money at all we trusted gold because gold was always stable and gold was stable because of its God-given properties. This is what God did, not the private sector. Gold is expensive to mine. A lot of gold accumulates; it, it never wears out, and so it can't be expanded by very much. And so, a lot of people responded to Rothbard, in particular, responded to Hayek by saying, "This is a crackpot idea. Nobody is going to trust." the Bernsteins, uh, uh, Bernstein money, that is. Because even if you dominate, who's going to trust you to uh, uh, to issue it, uh, to make sure that you don't profit by issuing a lot of Bernsteins and enriching yourself? And so uh, this, and then in fact, crypto money came out as well, which had the same problem. It was difficult to establish trust in people that whoever brings out the crypto is not going to be responsible and expand it beyond uh, all a reason. And so uh, then, uh, Natasha, uh, what's his name? <laughs> uh, the guy, the Japanese guy who doesn't exist. Uh, Natasha Nakamoto. Natasha. So, so he he invents his breakthrough is that he invents sort of the, the locked box concept. He says that. This is Bitcoin. And no matter what anybody does, you don't have to trust me. You don't have to trust Rob Bernstein. It, there will never be any more than 21 million units of this currency around. So that so so he replicates what God did for gold. And uh, and so that was the big breakthrough. And uh, and and uh, I guess by being a. Uh, Aware, by making us all aware of this, uh, it was possible for uh, Bitcoin to be recognized as money 
because it solved that problem. It was, I mean, there are lots of people who play with the idea that, well, well, it was a commodity, really. Uh, it was a game. You know, I don't know if I care too much about that analysis. Uh, somebody set up a plan whereby he had three pizzas for sale. You remember the, the famous pizza pie purchase? And he sold the three pizzas for, for Bitcoin. And so that was the first big transaction. And they were the most expensive pizzas ever bought. <laughs> Because apparently, I know they they were bought for several Bitcoin, and you know Bitcoin is now seventy thousand. But but suddenly there was a breakthrough, and Bitcoin was being used as money. So so it was a kind of a and 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 I should confess that I I being mired in the regression theorem and all the rest of it didn't initially see the the genius of what Nakamoto had invented, the idea that independent of me, this is going to be a stable. And also, by the way, I, I was and remain a little bit bothered by the fact that Bitcoin is uh, only going is never going to be more than 21 million units. But I think that that is manageable. In other words, in the case of gold, uh, gold, uh, it, it, gold can naturally expand. It, it, it does have some potential to expand because, because you know, there's a lot of gold in the ocean. By the way, I mean, eventually, when gold, if gold were money and it became really um, expensive, then it would be uh, efficient, be uh, probably economically efficient to mine it from the sea. Um, and so uh, a lot of people have a little bit of a problem with the idea of reaching a point where the money supply never will expand. But I, I, I don't think... What's the issue with that? Well, um, it, it's it's an adjustment problem. Uh, it, it's this. Uh, I, I, I think uh, I'll, I'll choose uh, numbers that uh, that I'm comfortable with. I think that in a free market, uh, goods and, the, the, the total of goods and services can expand by about 7% a year. I think we can have a doubling of output every 10 years. 7% it, it translates into a doubling of output every 10 years. Okay, but if we, but if we have a stable money supply, uh, then- you Built in uh, deflation? Well, you, well, well, actually, that gets us into terminology that matters to me. I would like to call it price deflation. Deflation, to my mind, means a, a contraction in the money supply. It, inflation means an increase in the money supply. But I use price deflation. It means is it means that prices have to fall. Uh, it means that if you double, it means that if you have 21 million ounces of, of 21 million units, I should say, of Bitcoin, that if you're going to double output then that means that all prices have to be cut in half. Although, you know, by 7% a year. Now, I don't think that that's too, that, I don't think that's too violent a, uh, an adaptation to make. I think that if people understand it, then, uh, then, then I think it can be made. But now think of the wage side, which is something that I know that George Selzin was very hung up on. And I, although see, he seems to have backed off about it of late. Uh, I mean, Selzin, Selzin uh, claims that, well, uh, if if you have well let, let if if you're going to double up let let's let's say that we do have an expanding uh, labor supply which is usual in, in any economy we have expanding population so if the labor supply doubles in uh, 20 years that means then that in order to employ everybody on 21 million units of Bitcoin that wages have to be 50 percent of what they used to be. It means that that the actual nominal wage has to decline over time. 
But at the same time, of course, the real wage, the value of that wage is increasing because output is doubling every 10 years. You know, you know, the, uh, the, the output, oh, is, output is increasing much faster than the wage is declining. But you see that you see there can be adjustment problems in that. But it's almost uh, the adjustment problem is just a function of the human psyche uh, in that if if there's a fixed amount of Bitcoin, what that means is less and less Bitcoin will buy more and more stuff. So you might just currently have where I'm a little bit concerned, like, wait a second, I'm going to make less Bitcoin working the same job next month. But I think people would adjust pretty quickly to realizing, oh, this is very different than the way I grew up with money. And look, as long as like you know, I, you know what I mean. I think people could wrap their heads around it pretty quickly. Yeah, uh, yeah, yeah. No, I, I think so too. And 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 of course, obviously, it won't be the same people. You know, eventually, you know, you know, uh, my kids, my grandkids, they'll 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 get used to it. And then also, uh, they'll it, it it will it will cause other interesting things to change. Uh, the I had a bit of an argument with John Vallis, who, who runs a, a Bitcoin. Uh, podcast about the idea of store of value, which is a term you used earlier. You know, me just like to say that, you know, obviously money is a medium of exchange and you don't, uh, you, you don't, you don't usually store value <laughs> in money. You basically store value in stocks, bonds, or in my wife's art. Uh, you know, you, you, you store it in assets that got to appreciate in a modern economy. But, but if bit, but interestingly, there, there, there could be a certain uh, fetish about storing value in just in Bitcoin, uh, because if Bitcoin is going to double in value every ten years, then uh, then you have the ability to, uh, to 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 have assets appreciate in value simply by holding money, holding Bitcoin. So then it is it is a sort of store of value. However, I think that investors, entrepreneurs, all of and banks, all of whom are seeking uh, your funds to lend out, they will compete. They will offer you an interest rate over and above that, uh, which will uh, lure you to invest in the usual way through stocks and bonds. Uh, but uh, but certainly it will change the ball game a little bit because it does mean that by leaving money in your mattress, it appreciates in value that way. So in that particular way, Bitcoin would become a, uh, a store of value. And uh, so I think that uh, I do buy gold, I do buy Bitcoin. It has been, of course, r- rather interesting to observe that Bitcoin has increased m- a multiple uh, by a multiple over the last 12 months, where gold has been pretty flat. And uh, so uh, I don't know where things are going. I mean, I, 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 uh, I you know, there, there, there are still a lot. You know, Peter Schiff is not just the only one. A lot, a few others that I have some respect for who think that gold is still the money of choice. Certainly, gold trades at a price that reflects its monetary value. It, it, uh, if, if it were only traded for its ornamental and industrial use, it would be worth much less. So it still has certain amount of money. You know, Nineteen hundred announced that's very pricey, but just ornamental industrial use, that does reflect the idea that it is a precious monetary metal. So it's difficult for me to know what the future will bring, except to say that uh, I do think that given the way government is mishandling the situation, uh, that that easily, it's fairly easy to predict that 10 to 15 years, I sometimes say 10 years, now I'm saying 10 to 15 years, down the pike, uh, there will there, there could be a major fiscal crisis of the dollar, and uh, and uh, if if that's the case, 
if that does, if and when that does happen, uh, there could be a a real flight into Bitcoin. Uh, when when uh, when 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 people like Selgin and other monetary economists talk about the difficulties of making the transition to Bitcoin as money or to gold as money. Um, the one thing that they unfortunately leave out is that probably it's got to happen by virtue of a crisis in the dollar. It's got to happen tragically. It upsets me to say this, but it's not going to be some sort of orderly transition whereby a bunch of sage economists make a plan and we will make the transition. <laughs> so, it's unfortunately going to be messy. And I, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I think that's a, a good transition if you'll allow me into, there's just two other things from the book um, I think are oh, important. Yeah, for sure, people sure. to be aware of. Uh, and I think that this is a, a natural introduction for it. And I don't even think we need to spend that much time on it. But uh, Rothbard does start off the book talking quite a bit about um, Gresham's Law. I, I hope yeah. I pronounced that correctly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and it's another aspect of kind of inflationary banking schemes, which are predictably not going to work out. Um, it, Gresham's Law at its core just says that bad money chases out good money. Uh, yeah. The idea being that if government forces me to use some sort of a currency at an overvalued rate, everyone's going to want to try and spend that. They don't want to keep that. And so instantly, if you've got a better currency, that's going to start being stored and it's going to disappear, uh, which creates um, certain financial problems. So I'll hand that back to you because it almost does seem to fall into uh, the Bitcoin and gold thing yeah. a little bit as people want to move away from the bad currency, which is the US dollar, because you see what they're the, the overuse of it. And towards better currencies such as like a gold or a Bitcoin. Yeah, well, that's 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 why uh, indeed uh, <coughs> it's driving. I I hold on to my Bitcoin and to my gold, and I use the credit dollar. So the bad. I mean, I don't even like that formulation. The bad drives out the good. It's sort of like I think it confuses people a little bit. It, it we hold on to the good. Uh, it uh, and, and we spend the bad uh, because uh, that's uh, it's the hot most potato. You want to get rid of it. Yeah. Well, yeah. It, it, for our personal advantage, uh, we defend ourselves by doing that. And so obviously uh, the term Gresham's law does apply in that particular case. Yeah. So what else were you going to mention? Yeah. OK, the, the last thing uh, that I want to mention, I'll hand it back to you if there was uh, anything else that you wanted to uh, cover in regards to the, the book or Bitcoin or the Fed and the topic in general um, yeah. is one of the interesting through lines in all of Rothbard's book. And this even exists in uh, um I'm um, forgetting the title of it. What's the what's this uh, really small pamphlet? The Anatomy of the oh, State. Oh, the State. Yeah, yeah, that's what I'm thinking of. The yes, Anatomy. Good. The Anatomy okay, of yes. the State. One of his interesting through lines <laughs> is he talks about um, the hijacking of the uh, the intellectual elite, and that there's a relationship between the money that government can pour into resources and essentially um, finding the right intellectuals to endorse their opinions. Uh, in, in order to basically propagate the masses or make it seem like this is coming from the intellectual class and that these are good ideas. And so in this book, he explains quite a bit how every time they were trying to um, basically either create the uh, move the state banking over to national banking or when uh, Cook was selling all the bonds or later when they created the Federal Reserve, um, a very important aspect in order to actually drive these policies forward is to have the intellectuals publishing the materials saying, hey, this would be a really good idea, and that they have the sales tactics where they're basically explaining, hey, this is good for everybody. Um, but I, I don't know. I, I, to me, that's like a fundamental and important kind of through line for Rothbard um, is showcasing how 
Uh, the fact that, you know, certain forms of economics or, you know, certain views within history might be popular might just be because of the fact that there's kind of government funds into that kind of, you know, intellectual um, works. Mm -hmm. Well, I mean, it sounds like you've summarized it fairly well, Rob. I mean, it, uh, to uh, uh, to now put a lengthy uh, story on it, <laughs> I, I came of age during the Vietnam War, and uh, I uh, I read a book by Noam Chomsky. I heard his lectures called, uh, and the book was called American Power and the New Mandarins. And uh, he uh, brought me up short in my 20s at the time, uh, making me realize that uh, that the intellectuals, the professors at the universities, had a, had a very powerful stake in furthering American imperialism, and that to the extent that they had any critiques of the Vietnam War, it was all from the standpoint of benefiting themselves from becoming uh, agents of the state in furthering American imperialism. Of course, you know, Professor Dr. Henry Kissinger, who became Secretary of State, was an exemplar of that kind of corruption they wanted to help run the world and uh, and and as chomsky uh, surprised me by pointing out because he was a socialist that uh, he said he, i would rather have averil harriman uh, a businessman slash aristocrat run the world averil harriman thinks he has a right to run the world because his grandfather ran railroads and uh, and uh, the professors think they have a right to run the world because they're smart. But the problem with being smart is that when you're wrong, you get defensive because then maybe you're not so smart at all. And maybe you, maybe you have no right to run the world. But in Avril Harriman's case, if he's wrong, his grandfather still ran railroads. So he doesn't have to be defensive and difficult. He said, so, so uh, Chomsky brought me up short by saying, if it were a forced choice, he would prefer Avril Harriman. Now, of course, obviously we have had Avril Harriman types and professor types all being quite interested in running the Federal Reserve for their own corrupt reasons. But clearly, you know, if you're Alan Greenspan and uh, and you run a relatively uh, successful slash unsuccessful consulting firm, or if you're Bernanke and you're droning on uh, as a sloppiest professor teaching economics to graduate students, how can that compare with the heady excitement with well, of, of running the Federal Reserve, of being one of the most powerful men in the world? I like the line of this guy, Perkins, who worked in government. Anyway, he said, they, they brandish at you the three most powerful drugs that, uh, that the society has to offer, sex, money, and power. And it's clear that, you know, Greenspan helped himself to all three of those drugs. And so that's what these guys do. Uh, and uh, that's the nature of their corruption. And uh, uh, there are gradations of it. Obviously, uh, Milton Friedman, who had mixed views, wasn't quite as corrupt as the rest of them. He had a certain uh, incorruptibility. But by and large, the lure of, uh, of working for government and having all that power is irresistible to these people. And so, therefore, uh, it, it's actually remarkable that even occasionally these people do come up with some insights, uh, uh, because sometimes when they're honest, they have some interesting things to say. They, 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 they are corrupted by power. That's the main problem with the, uh, with the mainstream economists, uh, corrupted by the lure of power. And I, and I got prepared when I studied economics, Chomsky prepared me to understand that, uh, to understand that John Maynard Keynes, who, by the way, most admired 
admired the Soviet Union and recommended his general theory, especially to the Nazis in the German edition. He said, this works best under totalitarianism. He was the exemplar of that uh, that kind of uh, economist slash intellectual. Sit at the tables of power. It's very a very exciting life. Uh, and so we can expect very little from these people. Uh, uh, we, But we do find that there are a lot of uh, people out there who are not corrupt. Professor Rob Bernstein, for starters, <laughs> Gene Epstein as well, uh, Mises, Rothbard, that tradition. And we, and we do find there are a lot of fellow travelers, a lot of people at the Chicago School. There's a lot of wisdom out there. But I will say that it is rather comical uh, to, uh, to sometimes uh, to, to examine what some of the mainstream are saying about Bitcoin because it sort of surprised the heck out of them. They don't quite understand it. But, you know, so we're not going to expect much from them. And unfortunately, only uh, an economic upheaval uh, is going to put uh, gold and Bitcoin uh, in its proper re- place as money, restore gold as money uh, in its proper place to the extent that that's possible, uh, or Bitcoin. I hope it's not going to be that severe or awful uh, on upheaval. I uh, hope that it's manageable. But clearly, uh, the uh, the powers that be, the people who run the Federal Reserve, uh, uh, the uh, are not uh, going to be of any help uh, when that day comes. All right. So uh, before we call in an episode, was there anything else that you wanted to cover? Or do you think we, uh, I think we've, we've given people a fair amount of education. Well, but an, hour, I know an hour and a half, Rob, come on. I mean, oh yeah. No, well, I, I could throw in another little nugget. I, I, I think that uh, you should, if you really want an interesting uh, sort of nuts and bolts lesson on the harm that the Federal Reserve does, uh, then, uh, and actually it does come from George Selgin, whom I've been both endorsing and disagreeing with, uh, uh, Selgin at the Mises Institute, uh, he delivered a, a talk summarizing a paper he'd done with two other economists in which he did a very simple before and after about the Federal Reserve. He pointed out that the period prior to the to the creation of the Federal Reserve in 1913 was not exactly the way he'd run the money supply. It was filled with, with episodes of government intervention and problems. However, if you take the period from 1870 to 1913, uh, that, uh, what, it's a 43-year period prior to the creation of the Federal Reserve, and then take the period afterwards and even forgive them the Great Depression, that even according to all of the so-called objectives of the Federal Reserve, price stability, uh, uh, the stability of business cycles, any way you measure it, the uh, before and after will show you that with the creation of the Federal Reserve, everything got worse, even compared to the highly imperfect situation we had from 1870 to 1913. I regard that as a very, very nice sort of common sense lesson uh, in economics. And it is so, of course, so contrary to the myths that kids learn in college that, that you know, that until the Federal Reserve, we had wildcat banking, we had, uh, we had, we had mayhem in, in the money supply. And then price we, elasticity. Uh, what am I saying? Price elasticity. Price, what do you mean? What, what, what price elasticity meaning what? What do you mean that? Oh, no, I'm sorry. Um, inelastic money supply. That's always like inelastic. the big talking point is that without uh, the Fed, we'll have an inelastic money supply. Inelastic money. Well, yeah, no, actually, so that's interesting because you and I, we discussed that an inelastic money supply is indeed uh, what Bitcoin is all about 21 uh, million units. And I think that if you think about it, 
uh, it's uh, it would probably be a, a a better world even than gold that that it would provide a certain knowledge and stability that we could all live with, and it would be it would restore capitalism to its true greatness. We'd have seven percent growth every year. We'd have wages falling, but real wages rising. We'd have prosperity for all. We wouldn't have heaven on earth, but we'd certainly have a, a much better society than we have now. So I guess uh, I guess you and I ought to shut up, Rob, and uh, and hope that your audience enjoyed another session with Professor Rob Bernstein interviewing Gene Epstein. Beautiful. Thank you so much, Gene. Have a great Sunday. You too. Bye-bye.